Hello and welcome back to our discussion of Harry Potter. Not just with Jonas and Christian, but also with Annika and Dennis from Science Pie. If you haven't heard the first part of this episode, go back and listen to that. What are you doing here? Yeah, We're talking go back, bugger off. In the first part, we talk about Harry Potter as a fantasy novel, the politics of the series, and Harry as a hero. But now for part two. You're listening to Outside of a Dog, where we decide whether great literature is actually any good. Can we maybe talk a bit about Voldemort? Because he is the big villain of the books. Oh, definitely. We, when we talk about the heroes, we also should talk about the villains. And what I always found extremely fascinating about Voldemort is exactly that. That once there wasn't Voldemort, but there was Tom Riddle. Yes. There he was just like any other of the characters. A pupil, maybe more ambitious, maybe with a darker streak, but he wasn't the chosen one. He wasn't destined to become evil. He was, he was a boy. And I always liked that idea of Voldemort making himself into that monstrous figure that he is in the end. This inhuman figure for fear of death. When it comes to Voldemort, I find it very interesting that basically for me, it comes down to the question of nature versus nurture. So the thing that makes him tick, is it is it because he's an orphan? No, Harry's an orphan too. That That can't be it. Is it because of how he was raised? Maybe he was abused as well. Is it because he kind of fell into the wrong group? Or is it because he had kind of had a genetic disposition to kind of have psychopathic tendencies? Which I find really hard to answer. Because we only meet him, I think, when he's about 10 or 11, when Dumbledore comes to visit him mm. in the orphanage. Right, so that's, yeah. That's the first time where we see him kind of interacting with other people. And um, he's a kind of a cruel kid at that point. Obviously, but you're right. He, it's not quite clear whether that is something that is innate, whether he will always be cruel, or whether that is something that could have been changed. I mean, Dumbledore has this hope that he could maybe turn him towards good and he sees that as a kind of failure that he didn't realize before that. He can't help it. He can't make Tom Riddle into a good character, so to say. It's also brought back at the end then that he's not Lord Voldemort, but he's Tom Riddle, who started out as just a boy. When he actually is killed, it says, Tom Riddle hit the floor with a mundane finality. His body feeble and shrunken, the white hands empty, the snake-like face vacant and unknowing. So at the end, he's just Tom Riddle. And that is one of the things that upset many people, including me, about the film version, where he sort of turns into ash and flakes that, away. Uh... No, but he, no, he just falls down and is dead, because that's what happens to little boys called Tom Riddle who turn into evil dark lords. That actually brings us really nicely to our next topic, death and mortality. Death is a theme throughout the novels, and Dumbledore actually says in the very first one, to the well-organized mind, death is but the next great adventure. Well, a lot of people in the novels don't believe that, and they try to evade death as much as they can. In fact, Voldemort's followers are called the Death Eaters, and Voldemort's lasting ambition in his long life is to evade death. We have another quote from the book. From far away above his head, he heard a high, cold voice say, Kill the spare. A swishing noise in the second voice, which screeched the words to the night, Avada Kedavra! A blast of green light blazed through Harry's eyelids, and he heard something heavy fall to the ground beside him. The pain in his scar reached such a pitch that he retched, and then it diminished. Terrified of what he was about to see, he opened his stinging eyes. 
Cedric was lying spread-eagled on the ground beside him. He was dead. That is the first time that we actually have a character's death in the narration of the novel. The first time Harry witnesses someone die. This first death, the death of Cedric, his fellow champion in the Triwizard Tournament, is a very shocking one. And it shocked a lot of people, I remember, at the time. Because it definitely signifies a darker turn in the novels. After that, in every book, several people die. Especially in the seventh, in the Battle for Hogwarts. So many people die that it's sometimes hard to take. But I always felt that the way Rowling deals with death is very effective. It's never really described in great detail or drawn out. It always happens in just a second, as death does. Sometimes death is very sudden. One moment somebody is alive, the next moment they aren't anymore. And the fact that it's such a normal part of the narration in the books makes it a lot more powerful, in my opinion. Especially the death of Cedric, but also that of Dumbledore, but even more the death of Sirius. Because it's so sudden. He's hit by a killing curse and falls through some mysterious portal that leads... Who knows where? It's a very creepy portal. Exactly. I mean, that portal is probably the portal to the realms of the dead. So at least there we have even the locus of death. So this is not just about serious dying. This is about death itself. Very interesting about this portal. Because the only people who can hear voices are Harry and Luna. And so there's this idea of Luna, whose mother also died, and Harry, who, who's always longed to know his parents, that they kind of have this weird connection or even affinity to death. And also in the seventh book, when he visits his parents' grave, and he wishes that he would be dead too and lie beneath the ground with them. Harry can be very morbid in a way. But as his parents' tombstone says, death is the last enemy that shall be conquered. So there again we have this idea of overcoming death or coming to terms with death as well. Maybe that as a way of overcoming it. But that's kind of heavy stuff for a series of children's book, isn't it? It's really heavy. And I think um, when, you know, when the film started coming out and you know, you see the 10-year-old the kid going into the last movie and sort of think, oh, you sure? I mean, for, for me, that was always a very big topic because when I was uh, seven years old, I sort of became aware of my mortality and I started reading Harry Potter when I was eight. So that was exactly yeah. the time when I just started with that. And somehow I don't think it hurt me, though. I think rather it helped me deal with it more effectively and realizing that that is something everyone goes through. Do you think that the criticism that death loses its meaning in that world is true because some people argue that because there are so many connections between the world of the living and the dead death really doesn't matter is that something you would say is total bullshit or is there something to it that Rowling maybe focuses too much on trying to diminish death I think that's oh it's bullshit it's utter bullshit utter bullshit as Annika says yeah it's uh, it's addressed in the end of the fifth novel when he talks to nearly headless Nick the ghost of Gryffindor House and he asks him well you're a ghost can't Sirius come back as a ghost as well and 
Nick tells him, no, ghosts are just shades. They are reflections. They aren't actual living people. And the same goes for everything that sort of seems to bring back the dead, such as the Resurrection Stone, for example, one of the Deathly Hallows from the seventh book. It brings back the death, but not really. It just brings back a pale reflection. If you ever thought that you could bring a person to life again, really, with these Deathly Hallows, it wouldn't work. So the only person who really overcomes death is Voldemort by making horcruxes, by committing terrible deeds and dark rituals to elongate his life, but it destroys him. It tears apart his soul. Now, the notion of a soul is not one that I would generally subscribe to, but certainly if you translate it into maybe meaning personality or self, Voldemort doesn't have that anymore. He's obsessed. He's not really living anymore. He is in a kind of half-existence where he continues to survive, but it's not living anymore. So ultimately, I think the books aren't about overcoming death. Overcoming death is always presented as the wrong way. They're about coming to terms with death. Yes, they are about dealing with death. And because um, you mentioned that some people say it's talked about too much in the books and basically death is after a certain point at every corner. But I think that's completely normal. I mean, Harry's an orphan. The big question that kind of next to why did Voldemort want to kill me has always been who were my parents. I've never met them. He's been abused by the rest of his family. So he's he's kind of, he, he's traumatized in that way. And he experiences incredible losses very, very early on in life and in a steady, steady way. He doesn't get a break. So I think it's very normal. And I think it's a good thing that it is addressed. Because I think it can actually, what you mentioned, it can actually help kids coming to terms with their mortality because that's what I experienced. I had this sort of, epiphany about mortality when I was, I think, 12 or something. When yeah, suddenly... I was five years earlier. Loser. <laughs> I haven't... I, I, either uh, I didn't have that specific moment or I didn't have it yet. Um, well, if you because... had it, you would remember it. Yeah. <laughs> You're going I... to die, Dennis. You're going to die. Yes. Yeah, no, but that's fine with me. No, you haven't had it yet. <laughs> <laughs> I think so as well. I had it with... 14, so I'm a, I'm a late bloomer in that regard. Well, actually, I, I've met people who had it with 20, 21, or, but... There's still hope for you. I, I mean, <laughs> maybe maybe you're now so settled in life that you will never have the gut-punching agony of realizing, oh, wow, so someday it's, my existence is going to be extinguished. It's terrifying. But I, I hope you never have that. Yeah. I hope that there's no life after death. Yeah, but, so. that, uh, yeah, but that's I, a different thing. I don't know. I, I just, for me, I, I've just got the feeling that uh, life after death, that the concept of life after death doesn't give me any comfort. Because of the specifics or generally? I don't really... Uh, uh, yes, I do understand how people can find comfort in um, that after death, everything's not quite over yet. Um, but actually, for me, that, that never kind of worked. I'm, I'm, I've, I've just got the feeling that if, if I die, it's, it's absolutely fine that, that everything that I did and, and every, every person that I talked to will somehow carry like a little bit of things that I did into the world. And then I don't have to be there anymore. I might think about that differently when I'm actually in <laughs> mortal danger. But that's uh, th that's my stance. It, it's not really... I don't really have uh, rational arguments for that. It's it's just the feeling that I'm... Well, yes, you do. You told me once that you like this, the idea of things actually ending, that you find the idea of yeah, ever that's... ongoing life completely terrifying because you will have seen everything and done everything. Yeah, the, 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 idea, of, uh, the, the idea of an endless afterlife, that 
actually that makes me panicky i think that's just the idea of eternity no matter whether yes no matter whether you're alive for eternity or non-existence for eternity yeah. either way it kind of fucks you up yeah but that means that dennis is not the best candidate to turn into voldemort so that's good that's i good, think very good but also Dennis would probably disagree with Dumbledore, who is all about accepting death, but who also calls it the next great adventure. Whereas, no, there is no adventure in death. It's just nothing. Well, nothing can be an adventure. <laughs> no. <laughs> I like that statement. I've always liked that, that sentence of Dumbledore's. It, it's a kind of nice sentence, but it's a bit evading the problem. But, True. But that's why it's comforting. Yeah, exactly. It's, but it's cold comfort. But, but let us not stay so much with death and suffering, because that's going to depress us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> that will depress everyone except for Dennis. <laughs> but these are not just books about dying, of course. These are books about growing up. And at least for Annika and me, these were books that we read whilst we were growing up. So how does Harry Potter fare as a tale of adolescence, a tale of... Getting to grips with the world and becoming an adult. Maybe dying and growing up are the same thing there. Ooh. Ooh, it's getting deep. No, but I mean, that is kind of obvious. The deaths come with the fourth book. So when the characters are... 14, 15. You mean the moment when other people realize they're mortal. If they're not such depressive seven-year-olds as I was. But or if they're not cold-hearted physicists who kind of think death is a fun, fine thing. I do not think that death is fun. <laughs> but you just sound like it. It happens. <laughs> yeah, and that Thank is... Thank you for this comment. <laughs> for this death, insight. Death, it exists. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Death. death. It will get you whether you subscribe or not. <laughs> you want to lick it? <laughs> Great, now I have to leave all the licking stuff in. <laughs> no, but, but that is part of, of growing up, not just... Licking? <laughs> hopefully, if you're doing I it do right. It. But yeah, death is part of growing up, and not just death, but realizing other things, that things aren't as black and white as you might think, that your parents, whether they're dead or not, are not the heroes you think they were. Maybe your enemies aren't as bad as you think, and maybe your friends aren't as good as you think. So I think that is one thing that the Harry Potter books do very well. That change from the first one, which is still kind of a, a nice fairy tale. There's danger, sure, Voldemort appears, but it's still kind of manageable. And then you have that increasing darkness, but also this increasing feeling of, yeah, these characters learn to solve problems on their own. And that is very well done. I think here I become the, the Potter fan in saying that these books, at least the first four or the first five, are really, really telling this story of growing up, this kind of exploring what is the world like. Maybe not so much the whole awakening sexuality part, because I always found that very strange. Yes. The love and romance with... <clears throat> there's a lot more sex in it, though, than you think. Uh, I just uh, reread the fourth one. And there's mention of people sneaking away into rose bushes. In the bushes, yes. yes. And then, well, it's... Well, well, what do you do in the bushes? Well, you can, you can you figure that out for yourself. And it's also, also kind of creepy. Worms. That's, that's a very disturbing image you're painting there. Wormtail. Um, and I always found it kind of creepy that Victor Crumb is 18, 19, he's dating a 14-year-old. Yeah. And also, actually, I, I spent a lot of time when I was reading the uh, the sixth book, When Harry Gets with Ginny. And I was like, 
they do it? They do it. They could do it in the girls' dormitory. No, they couldn't in the boys' dormitory because she's allowed to go there because she's a girl and girls are so trusted <laughs> by the headmasters of Hogwarts. But no, they always just they just spend time at the lake. So yeah, but but in the seventh, it's sort of said, and then they had some time alone, and Ron wasn't there, luckily. But a friend of mine actually had the theory when that when Ginny. In the seventh book, it comes to Harry on his birthday and talks about a present that she wants to give him. Because I was, I always thought, whoa, you kissed him, big deal. Never done that before. But actually, she had the theory that they were going to have sex for the first time. Ah. And I had never thought of that. But that actually... I also never makes, thought about sex that, between that, Harry and Ginny because I that, don't want to. <laughs> Why is that so disturbing to you? Uh, no. That, that, I don't know. Nah, it's... it's, 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 it's I, I can't, I can't, no, I can't, 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 I can't see it, can't see it. And th- Imagine you have children, and then... <laughs> Not a good point to start with. Yeah, but that that makes way more sense than just, oh, so you kissed him with a bit more than before. Boo. I thought it was clear that they had sex. I mean, maybe it's just my dirty mind, but... <laughs> really? In which book? Exactly that scene, the present thing. I always interpreted it as a hand job, so... <laughs> <laughs> Once. <laughs> okay, maybe moving on. On a ve- very basic level for me, the books don't just work as fantasy novels, they also work as novels about growing up. Just think of the fourth book where they have to find a date for the school dance. I was in that exact same situation. Well, I didn't know who to ask and it was so awkward. We always travel in packs, that is you- true. And th- I could always identify with these characters and their struggles of growing up. Maybe not their struggles with Dark Lords, but hey. Dennis stopped reading those books. Did you feel that it was too childish or did you feel that it was well, just no, not for I, you? I just didn't I just stopped there was no reason how that, can you not have a strong reaction to it either way that's how? the most disturbing thing I, I'm sorry for that you should be no you shouldn't <laughs> yes you should yes you should be I, I think actually that is what I really loved about the books right from the very start when little non-reading Jonas got the first book why I loved it was because it was different from all other children's books that I had read up to that point this was a book that took me seriously this was a book that did exactly what is so important in the series it accepted me for what i was and how capable i was and it didn't pander to me it didn't feel the need to include ridiculous little funny things that mark it out as a children's book it was just a fairly serious book that happened to be about children and magic as well yes but i always felt that these books respected the reader a lot more than much of the other children's literature that i was given at that age and that is why i immediately loved them that that is actually true and and this is not to say that there's nothing funny in them there's actually quite a lot of funny scenes but um i just re-listened to them while i was 25 years of age and i really enjoyed listening to them just because it does take you seriously is it's not a children's book which you stop enjoying as an adult you can read them as a child and as a grown-up and you will enjoy basically the same things of course you now see the books differently and now i realize much more for example that uh, harry is actually a cholerical character which i didn't uh, see so much before but still i enjoy the books basically the same way as i did when i first started reading them when i was eight years old and that's a great achievement it's an amazing thing that as i re-listened to some of the audiobooks i realized that as you get older you actually start to get more and more of the references that she uses be it i don't 
know, historical references. The fact that Slytherin is called Salazar. Yes, yeah. For example, like the Portuguese dictator. This is something I would have never thought of as a 13-year-old child, but now it's kind of, especially in names. I actually did, because I first went to Portugal when I was 13, and there I saw Salazar was a dictator. Oh, oh, hang on. I know another bad guy with that name. <laughs> I actually didn't know it until we did an episode on Harry Potter. But you're not a historian, so you don't have to know. You're a physicist. But you should. I mean, he was really horrible. And the history of Portugal is a rich and fascinating one that we should all be more interested in. But that's for another podcast, maybe. Lovely coffee as well. Yeah, lovely. Very cheap coffee. Yeah, and I'm just right now learning to speak Portuguese. uh, (laughs) I just really love the country. This is still not the Portucast, though. (laughs) (laughs) Outside of Portugal. We have a small advertising blog. Dennis, do you want to talk about? Portugal, do you want to lick it? (laughs) (laughs) but of course harry potter is much more than just a series of seven books there are movies there are audiobooks there's pottermore the exhibitions exhibitions and at the moment uh we're in great excitement because there's going to be a play called harry potter and the cursed child which opens i think next year yes 2016 and then also 2016 a new movie is coming out which is set in the world of Harry Potter, but not about Harry Potter. It's called Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. But it's set in the 1920s in New York. So since we have varying degrees of Harry Potter fandom around the mics here, uh, what is your opinion on all of these things? And will you go and watch Harry Potter and the Cursed Child or Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them? Yes and yes. And I will definitely try to um, buy tickets for the London premiere. I bet they're sold out anyway. But I want to see the play, come what may. I'm very embarrassed now because Annika has probably outnerded me on Harry Potter, which I didn't think was possible. It is. But actually, I think Harry Potter and the Cursed Child is a really wrong-headed project. I don't want to hear about Harry in his 30s being unhappy with his job as an aura. I think Harry's story is told adequately. I think Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them is exactly the right thing to do with this amazing world that she has created. You can tell so many stories in that world. Set in the 1920s, set even in the Middle Ages if you want, set nowadays, set any time you can imagine. What was the magical community up to all throughout human history? I would like to know that. What the films always struggled with was that they had to cram too much book into too little film. That's why the last two films are the best, because they had more time to develop the story. So if you write a script from the ground up as a film script and set it in that world, that can really work. I don't want to know more about Harry Potter, really. I think think he's had his fair share. But it's also about his son. For me, it's like this idea of introducing maybe a sort of next generation thing. But I'm also very excited about seeing Harry Potter in some way on stage. I can imagine the staging of it to be interesting, but it will just be a big production with special effects that you can do in the West End. But I don't want to hear this particular story. Really? I was so excited when I read that Rowling had said that the Cursed Child thing is going to be sort of the A part or the continuation. I felt cheated after I'd read the last book because I was like, has it... What? The kids? What? What? How? What the... Huh? No. Too little information. So maybe it's up to the rest of the podcasters right now to say, I don't particularly care. (gasps) That (gasps) is even worse. I still love the books, at least the 
four, or at least the first four ones. But for example, I never even finished watching the films. The fifth one is the last one I saw. That's the worst one! But the thing is, I don't care. I read the books, I know how it goes. I even read the Fantastic Beasts book and the book about Quidditch. Quidditch. I I really liked those because, as Jonas mentioned, that it adds something to the world. Although I also found it sometimes a bit, I don't know, cheap, that some things were just... Uh, Those books were written for comic relief, so you're literally saying that poor and needy children in the world can go fuck themselves. Charity That's cheap. what you're saying right now, Christian. No, you're saying that. Okay, not cheap. But I had the feeling that, yeah, you could do a lot more with that idea. And maybe that is what the film is going to be. A kind of extension of the world. The film is maybe the one thing that I'm going to see that will still connect me to the world of Potter. But otherwise, I, I'm good. I'm good. I also expect to be dragged into the films. Oh, yes, you were. Uh, so, and, and I don't think I'll be allowed a negative opinion on them because Eddie Redmayne is in them. Let us come to our conclusions. In the end, the question is, should you read Harry Potter or should you not? Or should you maybe just read some of the books? Why don't we let our guests start first? Are these actually any good? Well, I can just very simply say that I've listened to all of them and I was really, really skeptical at first because I was 25 years old. But then it was really worth its time. I just enjoyed it. You can go into the story, you can look at the names, find out interesting things about the names, you can look at the genre, but you can just also listen to it and enjoy it. And for that reason, I'd say, yes, you should read them. Yes, I would also recommend reading them because... And I also would recommend reading all of them because in order to kind of get why the series is so amazing is you have to read all of them. You have to kind of watch the story unfold and watch the characters grow. And only then you can kind of appreciate Rowling's genius in in the way she composed the story. Of course you should read these books. Your life, if you haven't read them, is probably empty, void of any enjoyment or happiness. And I feel very, very sorry for you. So go out and read the Harry Potter books, and suddenly you will become a very, very happy person. Yeah, sure, why not? They're good books. I enjoyed them. And in order to understand what the whole hype is about, you should have read them. But if you read them and you get the feeling that this is not for you, that's a good thing about seven books. You can stop at any point. I mean, you would miss the ending and how it all boils down in the end, but still, you can just say, okay, first two, the first four... And so on. That's that's for me, and I don't have to continue. I might question your humanity at that point if you choose to stop after book five. Well, pretty much. <laughs> we haven't discussed Rowling's style, for example. We haven't discussed other things where you might say, well, I don't know. That there's better stuff out there, and there probably is. Those are for more or less enthusiastic endorsements of the series. So what is your favourite Harry Potter book and why? It's hard for me to decide either the third one or the fourth one. The third one because it is one of the darker ones in many respects and it also has this incredible scene with the time turners, this very well constructed time travelling scene that also has emotional impact with Harry conjuring the Patronus and basically saving himself. And that's also a nice touch that it's not his father, but he saves himself. 
But I also love the fourth one because it opens up the world to such a degree that you realize there's more than Hogwarts. There's the, this whole magical world and it's an extremely dangerous world. This is the book where Voldemort comes back and you hear about the Death Eaters, that they're still out there. This is the book that turns this from just the boarding school story into a fantasy epic. So I love both of those. I think for me, it would also be the fourth book for exactly the same reasons. And also the fifth, for one thing, for the very profane reason that it is the longest. So I had the most Harry Potter But also because it's very detailed in its description of life at Hogwarts and especially of, of the classes. And, and I was always very, very interested in that. I mean, for me, she could have written whole books just about the lessons. And also, it, it's kind of the first book where I used to kind of struggle with Harry as a character because I, you don't like him in every scene in that book because he kind of, he starts to annoy you. He's this pathos-ridden, angry teenager. You just, ugh. But that makes him very human. And I really sort of like how the, how the relationships play out. So I found that very interesting. Actually, I would also say that the third, fourth and fifth are my favorites. The third, because it's just a really good, thrilling story about this escaped convict who then turns out to be Harry's godfather. The fourth, because it opens up the world. And the fifth, because it's the longest one. But it's also about this theme of trying to get involved, but you're not allowed to. And that's why it makes sense that it's the longest one. It's not unmotivated. But eventually, I think I would have to say that the fourth is my favorite because Harry Potter is not just a series of books for me. Harry Potter is my childhood. And when the fourth novel came out, I didn't speak English well enough to read it in English. So my brother, who had just finished school, sat down with me with the English edition and went through it sentence by sentence, translating it for me. And that was the most beautiful thing anyone in the world has ever done for me. And because Harry Potter is not just about the story it tells, but also how you grow up with it, I think the fourth one will always have a very, very special place in my heart. But of course, there's other books as well. And after you've read Harry Potter, what else is there to read? As another book on uh, magic, especially the magic of physics, I'd recommend A Complete Guide to the Universe by Roger Penrose. It's brilliant. Don't read it if you're not a physicist. Do! You haven't read it. You told me that people who aren't physicists won't get it. No, that's, that was another book. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm very sorry. <laughs> Buy the book, everybody. I would recommend A Summer of Drowning by Robert Burnside. He's a Scottish poet turned novelist. And it's a very, very strange story about a young girl living in the Arctic Circle with her very strange mother and very strange things happen and boys drown. It's amazing and very creepy. I read it in one night. I wanted to recommend another series of books that's very, very British and that sort of informed my notion of Britishness. And that was also one of the first times where I really realized that characters could be interesting about a book, not just the story. And that is The Menems by Sylvia Vaughan. It's about a family that lives in a normal British house, but it's a very special family because they just happen to be living ragdolls who came to life after the old woman that made them for company died. And so they live in hiding, very much as the wizards do in Harry Potter. And the books are incredibly exciting. They're not very well known, which is why they're a bit difficult to get your hands on, but The Menems by Sylvia Waugh are a great series of books, also about British weirdness. 
I complained about the elitism of Hogwarts and the Harry Potter world. So maybe I have to recommend Unlondon by China Mirville. Mirville is a fantasy author, a British fantasy author, but he's also extremely left-wing. And that is mirrored in Unlondon, which deals with that question of does the chosen one of a fantasy world actually have to be chosen or is it not just a thing of the people for themselves to decide who gets to save whom. So it's an extremely intelligent, extremely original and just fun book, Unlondon by China Mirville. So this was our very first crossover episode. Thanks very, very, very much to Annika and Dennis for participating in this mad experiment. So much fun. Uh, thanks Thanks, thanks, thanks for you. the butterbeer as well. Yeah. So if you want to hear more from them, you can listen to their podcast, of course. Where can people find that? You can find us on our website, uh, sciencepie.org. You can also find us on iTunes or Stitcher or the podcast app of your choice. And while you're already on iTunes, why don't leave a rating and a review, not just for Outside of a Dog this time, but also for Science Pie. Please do. Rate us five stars and just write, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> we are fine with that. Um, you can find us, obviously, at outsideofadogcast.com. You can write fan mail to outsideofadogcast at gmail.com. So this was our Harry Potter Christmas treat. So come back, actually not in two weeks, but in just one week on New Year's Eve, when we will be releasing the last episode of this year. And we will be reading a novel that was published in this year. The much-hyped First Bad Man by Miranda July. I think Voldemort is a pretty bad man, but maybe not the first not one. The first, no. no, no, there was Grindelwald before him. Yeah. yeah. I may have to disappoint you, this one isn't a Harry Potter novel. Oh, shit. Thank you very much for listening. For more information, visit outsideofadogcast.com. Fucking unprofessional. <laughs> you guys are awesome. Yes. I hate you. Yes. Yes. We did it. We did it. Actually, there's one more thing that we have to do whilst we have four people sitting around microphones talking about Harry Potter. <coughs> Snape. Snape. Severus Snape. Dumbledore. Snape. Severus Snape. Dumbledore. Snape. Snape. Severus Snape.